having been married for about 45 years, not about, over 45 years, um, I think Joan and myself have got to know each other fairly well, as you would guess in that time. And um, lots of things we have in common, but there's one thing where we are quite different to each other, is that whenever we read a book or whenever we watch a movie, my wife only likes books and movies that finish with everything tied up and neat at the end. That's the only one she likes. Doesn't like it if it's all left open. Where I only enjoy movies and books that are left wide open at the end. So you can see we have a bit of a problem in this area with each other. Um, but it's interesting. When you come to the end of the Gospels, you'll notice, because this is what I explained to her, I've got a good model I have in having it wide open, because when you come to the Gospels, they're left open. They're not all neatly tied together. The part that we read at the very end of Matthew's Gospel, it's not all sewn up with a nice bow, you know, and there's now the parcel and that's it, it's finished. It's not. It, it's that what the work of the Spirit carries on. The work of Christ carries on. You know, there is more to this story than what is here, far more to this story than what's here. So that's why I explained to my wife the way I look at things is much better than the way she does, although she doesn't agree. That's... But here it is, it's as we read this and we look out into the future that we find out who we really are as God's people. We find out what is it we are to do as the body of Christ. What's the task that's been, how is it to be done? How is it to be fulfilled? What's the central core of who and what we are as Christ's people? Sadly, over the generations, the church has often lost that vision and wandered down some sidetrack somewhere and been lost. That's why we talk of the great reformation, isn't it? The, The reformation, when people like Luther, God raised up people like Luther and others who found God's word again and says, hey, this is what God says we should be on about. This is what Christ said is our our task and purpose. And so refocus the church again. And the church constantly is needing this, and we constantly need this to be refocused again. So it's good for us to be looking at this passage as you come to the end of Matthew tonight. Now you notice the passage we're looking at, Matthew 28, and if you have your Bible, let me encourage you to look at it as we go along, so you've got in your mind what the word is. It begins with the word then. It says, then the eleven disciples went to Galilee. Now, it's good just to know briefly what briefly happened up to the then, to know where does this, what's the context, how does this fit? Well, we've just been through Easter, so you know the context. You know that uh, in chapter 27 it talks of the crucifixion and it talks of the body of Christ after he died on the cross, taken and laid in the tomb and the stone was rolled against the tomb, and that was on the Friday. And then on the Saturday being the Sabbath, then nothing took place because it was illegal in in the the Orthodox Jews to be doing anything, going anywhere, performing any duties whatsoever, so nothing occurred. And so we start chapter 28 early in the morning on on that first day of the week, on that Sunday. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, both who had been there at the crucifixion, who had seen that agony and the death of Jesus, who saw that he actually died and saw the body taken down, who knew where the body had been taken, they would have followed and seen it was laid in this particular tomb and the stone was rolled against the tomb. And so they came with spices early in the morning to come and to embalm the body. 
Now we know they haven't really thought through carefully exactly how they're going to move the stone back, what was going to happen, but we don't always think through things carefully, do we? Do you think through everything carefully before you do it? You've got things on your heart, things you want to be involved in, things you ought to do. You just go and do it, don't you? Go and get going. And that's what they did. It's also interesting for me, people wonder, why was it the women who came and not the men? Well, am I right in saying that often in almost all cultures that I'm aware of, uh, when you come to birth and marriage and death, it's often the women who lead this, isn't it? I mean, I was there when our three children were born and I'm glad my wife did the work and not me. I have no problem with that whatsoever. <laughs> right? I just stood there to encourage. That was my job. That was all it was. <laughs> and when you come to marriage, having three children uh, married years ago, um, it, it's the ladies get together, isn't it? Our, our two daughters-in-law. Um, I wasn't so involved, but with our daughter, you know, I was dragged along to, to see this dress being made and shaking the head how wonderful it all is and, you know, saying all the right things. Uh, but I wasn't necessarily asked what I thought, although when I was asked, I was careful trying to work out what I should say. You know, so I said the right thing. Because sometimes ladies can lead you into questions where yes is wrong and no is wrong. Do you, you, do, do, do you know that one? Oh, the ladies know it. You, know, you guys haven't caught on to that yet, but the ladies know that. And just putting your hands up and saying, I don't know, that doesn't help either. So you're, you're, you're really in strife. So I've been through one of those, right, as well. I'm looking forward to my granddaughters, if the Lord spares me, and just sitting around and watching their husbands going, their future husbands going through that hassle, you know, and so forth, of what's going on. But um, it's the women who are involved, and in death, it's often the women who are involved. So it, it is not strange that it was the women who came to the tomb. Do you? Follow what I'm saying when people think, why was it? Well, that, that's what the women did. That was their role in that culture. And that's often the role in most of our cultures, to be honest, what happens. They're the ones who come and pull the things together in the household. And that's what was taking place here. And so these two women come to the tomb very, very early in the morning. And when they arrive there, they find a stone has been rolled away. And so in an earlier verse in this chapter, we read this. There was an angelic being there sitting on this stone, who said to them, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. And he's not here, he's risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. The, the staggering thing that the ladies didn't really see but Peter and John, we're told, came later and went into the tomb. The staggering thing that they saw was that the linen cloth that had been wrapped around the body was lying there as though the body had gone through it and the cloth around the head was folded up and sitting where the head would be. Now, that's quite um, staggering. The reason why that hit them so hard and it didn't hit us so hard because we've heard about it for so long. Remember, it's not that long before that Lazarus rose from the dead. Do you remember? That's not that long before this. And when Lazarus, when Jesus called Lazarus out from the tomb, how did Lazarus come out from the tomb? He shuffled, do you remember? Why did he shuffle? Do you remember? Because all the cloth was still wound around him. 
And so he shuffled out and Jesus said, unwrap the guy. <laughs> unwrap the guy. Unwrap him. Do you know? And so he, he was brought back to life and then there was a time later when Lazarus died. Jesus' resurrection not the same as what happened with Lazarus. Do you, do you see when the disciples saw the cloth there? It would have hit them. Something different has happened here. Am I making sense? Do you follow me? Something different has happened here. This isn't the same thing that's occurred. Uh, what's really taken place here? What's really happened here? And so the women, both Mary Magdalene and Mary, go back to, to tell the disciples and on the way back we're told that they were afraid. However, they had joy and they ran. All these things happened. All these mixed emotions were happening because on the way they met Jesus. They met Jesus and they immediately recognised who he was and worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. And so they go and tell the eleven disciples and they go to Galilee. And so we come to our verse in, in verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. The ministry of Jesus began in Galilee, if you remember, back in the early parts of, of Matthew's Gospel. That's where it began. And Jesus calls them to come back to Galilee. Now, what takes, here, what takes place here at the end of Matthew is not the ascension. The ascension is 40 days after Jesus rose from the dead and we're told about the ascension in the book of Acts. And that happened at the Mount of Olives near Jerusalem. This is something different. Jesus told them to come. He'd meet them in Galilee and this is what he told them at that, this particular meeting, one of many meetings that he had with his disciples, one of many. Now the eleven, they too had been there when Jesus was crucified. They too were aware of the empty tomb and one or two of them had met Jesus already that we find out from the other Gospels. And here they came and when they saw him, they immediately worshipped him. Now, often we miss what is going through the emotion that they're having here and what they're doing. Remember, these disciples are all Jews. And what have they been trained from when they were babies and toddlers? There is only one God. And you only worship that one God and no one else or no thing else. You will have no other idols. You will have no other one. There is only one Lord. There is only one God. And when you realise that these eleven bow down and give worship and praise to Jesus, the risen Christ, can you see how they are recognising that Jesus is not just simply a prophet or a teacher. He is truly who he claims to be, the Son of God. He is truly who he claims to be, the Messiah, the Christ. He is truly the one sovereign Lord. And therefore, when you stop and read this, remember that this is, this is something that these men have never done before. Do you? Right? And therefore, what they're recognising and what they're seeing is something you and I just take for granted. But this was so, so amazing, so overwhelming for them. And it says that some doubted. I think that many think, and I think I would agree, it's not necessarily the 11 disciples who did the doubting, because most of them had met Jesus already. But there were others who were there, other disciples, other followers who were there. And amongst them, I think, you would find that many of them doubted, many of them wondered. 
Uh, Many of them need to see for themselves, not just hear from the other disciples. And as you look at this, a, a better translation for the word doubt is hesitate. Many hesitated is a better thing. In other words, although Jesus told them he was going to die and rise again from the dead, that information had really not got into their heads at all. Now, that's another thing that my wife would share with you. She, She would tell you there's lots of information she gives me, but it doesn't go into my head. Is that right? That's I'm not the only one, am I? The other people that happens to? Lots of information you get and you don't really take it. I mean, you hear it, you understand the language. You know, so it's not a difficulty in understanding, but it doesn't compute. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't get into the computer somehow. Do you know where it can really register? And although you hear things, it doesn't mean you've really grabbed it. Uh, when you're told later, often you think, oh, now I know what that was. Do you? Isn't that right? Now I know what it was. Now I understand what you were saying. And so can you see, the disciples are just ordinary people. Can you see see this? What they're going through is what you and I go through. They're not unique, you know, at all. They're just men and women who God is working in and through, you know. And God, as God works through them, he wants to work through us. You know? So when we have all our problems and ups and downs. That doesn't, God doesn't give up on us. He hasn't given up on them. He won't give up on us. Do you? He will hang in with us. Do you know? And that's what he does with his disciples. He hangs in with them. And you've got to remember that these ones who are hesitant, that they were there when they saw Jesus crucified. They were there when they saw that. That, that, that crucifixion is final. Uh, there's no, that's it. You know? uh, once you've nailed up to that cross, that, that's that's it. And, and they saw he died. That, they saw the other two thieves there, now either side of him, dead as well. And they saw the body taken down. They saw the body. That They went through the anguish. Can I ask, if, if, has any of you seen that Mel Gibson film that came out a few years ago called The Passion? Did some of you see that? Um, it's a very moving film, isn't it? I... I, um, I, I you know, you, you talk about crucifixion, or we do, um, and we have crosses and so forth, uh, but I, I don't think we have any idea of what um, to be executed uh, by crucifixion really. Um, it's one of the, um, uh, the, the most um, agony and anguish um, that human beings have ever devised in order to execute somebody. Do um, and, and that's what they stood and watched. Yeah. That's what they stood. The, that's what they went through. I mean, I, I found it quite emotional watching that film. Did some of you as well? So, can you imagine actually being there do, and seeing that? And, and then having seen the body taken down. Can you see how to grab that he's risen from the dead? They took a bit of time. Can you? You know? Um, and sometimes we need a bit of time, you know, to take it on board. I, I think sometimes we can be a little bit hesitant. Do, do you know, we, we want to believe, uh, we want to understand, and we can be a little bit slow, do you know, and we need to pray that the Holy Spirit would help us to take it on board, because that's what happened with the disciples. It was the Spirit who helped them to really take on board what had taken place and how to respond to what had taken place. But then, 
Once this is dealt with, Jesus then says to them, this is in in verse 18, Jesus came to them and he said, and there's three things I want us to look at here. He came and said to them, first of all, he said, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Now, we read Daniel chapter 7 tonight. Had any of you, were all of you aware of that passage, Daniel chapter 7, before? Who was aware of that passage before? Let me see. Some, but some it would be new, wouldn't it? Now, these disciples, they knew their Old Testament in a way that you and I don't have a clue because their school, their, their um, uh, synagogue, as young children they went to school and the whole of school was on the Old Testament. That They knew everything back to front in that. So when Jesus talked about himself as the Son of Man, they knew where Jesus took that name from and they knew it was from Daniel and they knew that the Son of Man was the one who was going to come, who was the Christ, who was the Saviour and all authority in heaven on earth was going to be in his hands. Do you, that, that, they knew that. That's why the authorities, the religious authorities, when Jesus called himself the Son of Man, got so uptight with him. Do you, why are you using this name? Do you, that this is the name for the Christ. This is the name for the Messiah. This is the one who's going to come to save his people, to give his life for his people. This is the one in whom all authority and power in heaven and earth is going to centre. He is the Christ. He is the Son of Man. How come you're using this name? And that's why Jesus purposely used that name. And when you read some of the epistles, Paul, as he talks about Christ, talks in terms of the the Son of Man, talks in terms of the Christ under whom all authority and power in heaven on earth is given. And this is clear, Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth is given unto me. I am this one. Now, this should be a source of great comfort and assurance to us as Christians. Do do you know, the, the Jesus that we're committed to is the Jesus who not only has died for us, who has not only risen from the dead, who has not only ascended the right hand of power and authority, but he is the one in whom all authority and power ultimately rests. You know, now here in the, the age in which we live, there are many who believe ultimate power and authority rests in them. Isn't that right? There are lots of governments who think power and authority rests in them. Isn't that true? There are lots of armies who believe ultimate power and authority rest in them, you know, and try to exercise that. But in the end, all is going to answer to Christ. His is the ultimate power and authority. And he is the one that I'm committed to, you know. So although I may not understand lots of things that are going on around me, I believe that all power and authority truly belongs in the hands of Jesus. And in the end, that will be demonstrated to be the truth. And all these others will be demonstrated to be lies and counterfeit and deceit. They're the lies and counterfeit of the evil one. They're not reality. Reality is centred in Jesus. The final word is Jesus. And that's important for me to grab onto. I hope it's important for you to grab onto. Now, as a result of this comes the second word that Jesus gives. He says, therefore, as a result of this, this is the logical connection, the logical conclusion. He says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. The imperative is to go. He says the imperative is to go. 
I find it amazing that as Christians we believe the imperative is to stay. The imperative is to form a club. The imperative is to stay together and don't talk to anyone outside of this place. Isn't that right? Often as Christians we do that. We're a little club that we come together and our imperative is don't go. (laughs) Stay. Look after each other. Care for each other. Feed each other. You know, care for each other. And, and no wonder we then shrink up like a prune. Do you know a dried prune? You know what a dried prune is? Hey, don't ask. But we shrink up like that and, and that's what we become. Whereas the imperative is to go. It's to go. It's to go and make disciples of all nations. Now, often some people have thought this making disciples of all nations is something new that Jesus talked about. It goes right back to the book of Genesis. It goes right back to the very beginning that the promise that's given to Abraham is that you will be my people, I will be your God, and through you all the nations on earth will be blessed through you. And it's interesting, the, the, when the Old Testament, a couple of hundred years before Jesus was born, was translated into Greek, the word that was used for nations there is the same word that's used for nations here. Exactly the same word. You you look at the prophecy of Isaiah that talks about the servant king that is going to come. And the servant king is going to be a king of all nations. And through him, people from all the four corners of the earth are going to be drawn together into the body of Christ, of this servant king. It's not a new idea. The issue in the New Testament in the book of Acts, the arguments within the church were basically not over whether non-Jews from other nations should be able to come into the body of Christ. The issue was on what conditions should they come in. That was the argument. There were many Jewish Christians who said, you must become a Jew in order to be a Christian. So non-Jews can be Christians, but you must become a Jew first. And this was the great argument where Paul was saying, no, we're saved by grace. And we're saved by grace alone. We're not saved based on based by being a Jew. You're not saved by grace by anything other than by faith in Jesus alone. And that was the big issue within the New Testament church. There was no debate over Gentiles should be Christians. The debate over on what a basis or what authority should they enter in. And where to make disciples of all nations. It's interesting. Jesus talks about his disciples. Now, did you notice that his disciples didn't go home and come for a lecture once a day for an hour? Did you notice that? His disciples left everything and were with him 24 hours a day. Isn't that that? In other words, they built a relationship. So, to be a disciple is a relationship word, not a going to lectures word. Does that? Often we think uh, the way we learn... And if we're going to follow someone, we go and hear them speak or go and hear a lecture. Then we go back home again. There's no personal commitment. But disciple here carries the the concept of personal commitment. Personal commitment. The imperative is to go and make disciples that people come to know Christ. The other thing in this imperative is that we we are called under God to make disciples who 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 make disciples goes on and on from generation to generation 
that this is, this is a process that carries on from generation. So it's not just that we have a role to make disciples, but we need to disciple the disciples to make disciples, who disciple the disciples to make disciples, who disciples the disciples to make disciples. Does that, uh, that, that, and, and that's something we often fail to do. Often we seek to make disciples, but we don't, we don't train the disciple how to be a disciple. Does that make a sense, how to make disciples? So what, what this is saying, and would you read this passage, what the, the words are actually saying, they're called to make disciples, to train them to make disciples, to train them to make disciples, to make, train them to make disciples. That, that's what we're to be on about as God's people, being brought. And the way that gets expressed for those who repent and believe and turn to Christ, to be baptised and to be taught. And notice they're to be baptised into, not just in, but into the name of the Father, Son and Spirit, in the name of the Trinity. I, I can remember as a teenager trying to understand the Trinity. And at that particular time, I think I used to like to have everything nicely tied up with a bow. I think I learnt the hard way you can't do that over the years. And so there were lots of illustrations of explaining the Trinity. Do you, but il, every illustration fell down. It just didn't work in the end. You know? And I find it interesting, you get to this point where it says to, to baptise in the name and that the, the word name is singular there. It's not into the names of Father, Son and Spirit. It's into the singular name of God, Father, Son, Spirit. Three persons, one God. Now, how do you hold all of that? Well, I think you hold it with difficulty, <laughs> is, what, is what it is. It's interesting, that the disciples here have, have no problem with this. Why do they have no problem? Because they've been with Jesus for this three years and they've really slowly come through, all, especially these things of the last 48 hours that have just happened to them, to realise that here is no ordinary prophet. Here is no ordinary. Here is truly the Christ. Here is truly the promised Messiah. Here is this promised servant from the prophecy of Isaiah. Here is the one who is truly God. They understood and they're going to understand even more about the work of the Holy Spirit. And, and you see, Jesus forgave sins. It's only God who can forgive sins, isn't it? Our sin is against God. He's the only one who can forgive. It, Jesus was demonstrating, and as they lived and saw the miracles and heard his words and heard the result of those words, that then they had no other way of explaining, of understanding in their minds you know, who Jesus is. He is that Christ. And then as they experience the work of the Holy Spirit, how else do you explain that? And therefore, can you see how that they came to this point that God has now shown himself as, as one name, but three persons, Father, Son and Spirit. I've had to learn over the years that there are many things that I will never finally understand but there are truths that I've got. Um, and if I can put this truth concerning understanding completely who God is, if I was able to do that, then I am God, am I not? And I've had to sit down and say, Peter, you are not God, far from it, but you are human, you are created by him. Therefore, 
there is no point that I'm going to fully comprehend the whole person of God. That's not possible with a created brain to, to be able to do that. And so therefore my understanding and experience of God is through Father, Son and Spirit. And therefore I hold that as the truth. And if you say, well, you've got to put all that together. Well, there's lots of things in life I can't put together. I'm very thankful that I've now got grandchildren because I had a, um, an iPod and I couldn't make the volume work. So I rang my five-year-old grandson and he told me how to make the volume work. So there's lots of things that I don't know and there are lots of things I don't understand and there are stacks of things I don't know. But that doesn't mean I don't believe they exist. Is that, is that right? I don't wipe them out because of that. It's because I understand my limitations. Do I understand that? And, and, and for, for the disciples and for me, that God is Father, Son and Spirit is not illogical. Do you? Uh, it, it fits with who I know God to be. And that's what it was with the disciples. And to be baptised into, not just in the name, but into the name, means entry into allegiance. It means joining with. It means coming under that authority, coming under that leadership of, of the triune God. And to teach them to obey all things, to obey all things. And, and the teaching and the obeying it is not just simply understanding truths in your head, but them having an impact on your heart and your will. It's a whole life experience thing here, not just an on-your-own experience. And that's why I strongly believe that studying God's Word together is a fellowship activity. It's not an on-your-own activity. You can study to be a doctor or an engineer and never talk to another student and still pass and still be a good doctor or a good engineer. You can't do that with theology. Theology is not just something to get in your head it's something for you to get in your heart and your will and therefore that's, that's a community activity together that's needed. That's why studying theology, our theological colleges, the most ideal ones is when you can live in together and therefore you study together, talk together, pray together, read the scriptures together, mull them over together. That's the growing, that's the teaching. You see, that's the teaching. The teaching isn't just forking out information. The teaching is understanding what God is saying together and living it out and encouraging each other in living it out. That's what the the teaching all things is talking about here and everything that Jesus has commanded. Notice that that there are no other things that have got to be added to it. We live in a time in the world today where there are many Christians who are saying that Jesus' word isn't sufficient. We've now got modern science, we've now got our human reason and that supersedes all of the word of Christ. Well, I, as I meet those people and talk to them, I, I find no, no understanding of forgiveness of sin. I find no understanding of, of knowing Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. I find no joy in knowing Christ and knowing that they can cry out, Abba, Father, my Father. I don't find any of that. It's Jesus' words that's sufficient. Do you? His word, the word that he's given us, the word of the, of the gospel is sufficient. And then Jesus says to them, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. I am with you always until the end of the age. It, just one little interesting thing to note that I found a little bit helpful. Uh, always, um, as, as I've got in my NIV, I'm not too, is always the same in the translation you've got? Always? Yep. Or a bit, it's, it's the only place really where the, this Greek word appears in the New Testament. It's quite interesting really. 
And when you go back and, and, and look at it, one way of explaining it, as I was reading, is, is by translating it, the whole of every day is what the word is trying to say. So when, I'm, when I say I'm with you always, it's not just saying always, but it's saying the whole of every day, every, every minute of every 24 hours of every day I am with you. Does it, isn't that a wonderful way of expressing it? Don't you think or not? It's the whole of every day I am with you. Not just simply an always, which always just can be, I don't know, it's a bit nebulous, isn't it? Always. But the whole of every day I am with you. I am with you. Even to the end of the age, to, to my return. What a wonderful promise that is. What a wonderful promise. You know, you've been working through Matthew's Gospel over these last few weeks, is that right? And um, the church that I'm supposed to go to where I live, but I'm often away and not there, but they've been working through Matthew's Gospel as well, which has been interesting, and to come to this same point that you've come to. And as we come to this point today, we're very conscious of of the chapters that have gone before. We're very conscious of of the, the Garden of Gethsemane. We're very conscious of the crucifixion. We're very conscious of the resurrection. And we're very conscious what the resurrected Lord now says to his church. He says, all authority. So as a result of having worked through Matthew's Gospel, what, what the Lord is now saying, what's saying to us, do you understand who this Jesus really is? And that all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to him. Do you understand that he is truly the Christ? He is truly the Son of the living God. He is truly the only sovereign Lord. And then do you realise that if you're committed to him, you're committed to go? You're committed to go. And to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And we've just talked about what making disciples really means. And then there's the wonderful promise, I am with you the whole of every day. I am with you the whole of every day. Another wonderful promise, the same sort of thing that the psalmist talks about. The psalmist says to himself, you know, it's good for me to remember that the Lord never sleeps. The Lord never sleeps. Uh, Some of us think that we don't need sleep because we have to be in control of everything, every minute of every day. Is that right? We've got to be the controllers of the lot. Well, remember, the Lord says, I never sleep. So what's the Lord saying when he says, I never sleep? I've created you that you've got to sleep. (laughs) Is that all right? (laughs) That's what he's saying. I've created you. I'm the only one on 24-hour duty is what the Lord is saying. You cannot be on 24-hour duty. I'm the only one on 24-hour duty. Remember that. Okay, so if you're one of these control freaks, remember. Uh, Okay. The Lord only is on 24-hour duty and, and the Lord is one who is with us every minute of every day, the whole of every day. Let's bow our heads for prayer. A loving Heavenly Father, we just thank you that we've had the opportunity over these weeks of working through Matthew's Gospel.